The title of this talk is Awake to Love. We've talked a lot over the last few days about developing understanding. Love, metta, for it to develop has to be paired with understanding, with wisdom. We've talked about how we use our thinking mind to connect to the heart and part of what we do in the service of using our thinking mind is bring in understanding to the process. We've talked about how important it is to understand what the words mean. The words are very important. The words like happiness, the world, words like love, the words like friend, first night I talked about happiness and how uh, there's this worldly definition of happiness, the happiness of the world and our tendency throughout our lives is to to have been to seek after worldly happiness the happiness of sense, pleasure gain, status praise because we perceive given what we've been told and the perceptions that the culture has offered offered us through the words it uses, that this is what happiness is. It's only until we hear the Dharma, hear about the Buddhist teachings, that we can begin to understand that there's another kind of happiness. And this word happiness, when the Buddha uses it, means something else entirely different. So words are important. They're how we construct our world, and they're also what we use in the service of changing. So the meanings that we ascribe to words and the way that we use words are what enable us to change. When we understand what the Buddha means by happiness, we can change and seek a different kind of happiness, the happiness of the heart a greater happiness. Another word that's very important is the word love. We use the word metta. Tonight I'm going to use that somewhat interchangeably with love. It's important, I think, to use that word love because metta isn't really so much a word that we have. It isn't really a word that we have in English language. And uh, it's important to understand that what love is may be something very different from what the culture posits that love is. So if we call it metta, well, then it's something different. But really, you know, these are two sort of options, two ways of understanding what love is the world's definition and the Buddhist definition. Now, the world has a meaning for the word love or a definition and uses the word love or perceives love in a certain way. I mean, we could say that there's not a lot of understanding, not a lot of thought has gone into it. You know, the world's definition of what love is has been defined largely by romance novels and movies and TV shows and popular songs. 
to a large extent when we talk about love in our culture, what we're talking about is romantic love. To a large extent, not completely, but this is a big part of what we talk about when we talk about love. We're talking about romantic love. Now, romantic love is great. I'm, I'm not here to knock romantic love. I'm not going to say I'm never going to go to another Hugh Grant movie, you know? But it's not what the Buddha is talking about when he talks about love. And compared to what the Buddha is talking about, this romantic love is really quite limited, as we know. It's quite limited, it doesn't last very long, and more often than not, it leads to suffering. This romantic love, in general, is focused on one person. It discriminates. It's based on preferences. It comes out of liking and disliking. We like certain people, we dislike certain people, and we identify a person that we like, who we find pleasant, and if that person by chance happens, perhaps by looking at our online profile, to identify (laughs) us as somebody they like and deem pleasant, that mixture may happen and romantic love may take place. It's based on preferences. This is what I like. I like this person. This person is pleasant. So it's conditioned, right? Romantic love is conditioned. You can't have romantic love without an object of your affection. You can't have romantic love without the other upon which to project what you like and what you find pleasant. So it's conditioned by simply the need for there to be another. And then, of course, it's conditioned by the other being pleasant. Now, when at some point we find the other unpleasant, you know, which is inevitable, given that pleasure and pain are in constant fluctuation, well, then, then we have difficulty. It's kind of like the weather. You know, if we're dependent on the weather for our happiness, you know, we're really relying on a very undependable happiness because the weather, as we see, is subject to fluctuation and sometimes it's pleasant and sometimes it isn't and that's largely out of our hands. And it's the same way, of course, with romantic love. It's the same way when we depend upon others for our happiness. Somewhere I heard that uh, we'll be uh, separated from all that is dear and appealing to us. So, in following this path and in doing the practice that we're doing here, we're looking for a more reliable, a more reliable kind of love, a love that isn't dependent on things outside of ourselves, a love that is actually not dependent, that's unconditioned, that doesn't fade. Romantic love is, and a lot of the other kinds of love that we uh, think about when we think about love is a function of desire. You know, if we think about romantic love, there's a desire for the other. Sometimes it's just the desire for the concept of the other and having another. It's a desire for the other's body, for the emotions 
oceanic emotions that arise when we love the other person. It's a desire for the narrative, the whole story, right? More than anything, it's the desire for that world we create. You know, desire, there's desire for the other person or for the relationship, and then there's the holding on, the clinging, and out of that comes the narrative, the story, what the Buddha called becoming. That which is becomes something else. The story is something that we make up. It exists in our mind. The Buddha said the holy life is lived for the abandoning of becoming. So when we are uh, engaged in this romantic love and seeking it, uh, we're not present. We're in a world that's not real. We're in a dream world, the Tibetans call it. We're in this place of becoming. We're not present, we're not in the body, we're sort of out of the body. Again, you know, we see this in all the depictions on movies and televisions and popular songs. One of my favorite scenes in movies and is such a wonderful depiction of when somebody is struck by this romantic love is in the Woody Allen movie, Hannah and Her Sisters. And Michael Caine, the Michael Caine character, uh, develops an infatuation with the Barbara Hershey character, but he's not sure if, you know, she feels the same way about him. And finally, one day, he pulls her to the side and says, "I have feelings for you," and grabs her and kisses her, and she says, "I have feelings for you too." And of course, it's an illicit affair, so Michael Caine has to saunter out, and he's out on the street, and he's like, "I got my answer. I'm walking on air." You know, it's, I mean, he just, it's just such a wonderful acting portrayal. You know, it's like this out of body, I'm walking on air, and it's why people do such horrible things. You know, in that, in that story, of course, Barbara Hershey is the sister of the person Michael Caine is married to, played by Mia Farrow. Poor Mia, you know? So this story, this fabrication is just that. It's a fabrication, it's conditioned, it's driven by desire, by liking, by preferences. And it's really hard to keep it going, right? It's really hard to keep that story going. We have to keep developing it and developing it, which means You know, the beloved has to keep doing things that are pleasant, and we have to try to make sure that their beloved is doing things that are pleasant, and we have to be able to perceive what the beloved is doing is pleasant, and the storyline is continuing to be pleasant. It's very painful. The Buddha said it's like a child building sandcastles. You know, we build that sandcastle, and the ocean, I mean, that is kind of like romantic love. The water knocks it down. Build it again, the water knocks it down. When I think of this, in constant nature of infatuation and romantic love and desire, I think about one of my favorite short poems by the great beat poet Lawrence Ferlinghetti. For those of you who are child of the children of the fifties, you'll probably appreciate this. It's from Coney Island of the Mind, number nine. It's a, you know, it's kind of like how romantic love is and how these you know, it's like a Coney Island of the Mind. 
Coney Island of the Mind, number nine. See, it was like this when we waltz into this place. A couple of Polish cats is doing an Aztec two-step. And I said, Dad, let's cut. But then this dame comes up behind me and says, you and me could really exist. Wow, I says. Only the next day she has bad teeth and really hates poetry. <laughs> an old friend of mine actually named his band after the line is doing an Aztec two-step. If you ever get a chance, it's a, a great band. It's a great poem. It's interesting to know how we use this word, word love in the culture. I mean, uh, you know, again, it's important how we use words. Uh, you know, when I was growing up, my generation, child of the 60s, uh, you know, it's like you would never say to anybody, I love you. You know, that was like dynamite. You know, you just didn't say that. You know, it's like my parents never told me they loved me. You know, my mother never told me she loved me. She never said, I love you, until that word love and that particular phrase, I love you, became sort of matter-of-fact, off-handed, something that people just kind of threw, you know, sort of like a, a greeting, hello, goodbye, I love you. You know, I mean, it's used so freely and so off-handedly. People say it all the time. I was going to say my favorite, but probably the thing that perhaps rankles me more than anything else is when you're walking down the street and somebody's standing on the corner on a cell phone. It's like, I love you! Love you! <laughs> Another one that I really like is, uh, you know, in written form. You know, the, you know the sign for love in written form? I didn't know what it was. I'd seen it a few times. It's the less than and a three. That's I love you. I think it's a, it's a heart sideways. Less than three. That's kind of where love has gotten. Another, you know, and, and of course social media has changed our relationships and I would suggest not in a good way. Some people would say some ways in a good way, some ways not in such a good way. A lot of what the research and is coming down now is showing that, you know, the people, i.e. the kids... Uh, the generation, the millennium, I guess, you know, the, the generation of the 2000s or whatever, uh, that has learned to communicate through social media, you know, their relationships, their connections, their empathy with one another has degraded. You know, I, I, when I think about this, I think about, you know, how we use the word, word we've been talking about today, the word we used, friend, you know? the word we use, friend, think about how that's used on Facebook, right? On Facebook. It's like, I have 500 friends. No, you don't. No, you don't. I mean, at least not according to the definition of what the Buddha, you know, it's like, we're doing the dear friend today. Let me go to my Facebook thing. And I don't even know that person, but I'm going to use them as my, as my dear friend. A few years ago, I, uh, you know, so this, this idea of what we mean by friend has changed, you know, given the way that we interpret that and have given it a definition in, of our, in our culture. 
And again, you know, what we're seeing that is our relationships, our connections with others are degraded by technology because we don't make an awake, present connection with others. My little personal Facebook story is I joined Facebook a number of years ago and eh, I didn't have too many friends on there, but that, actually I didn't like that. I, you know, I was kind of jealous of all those people that had more friends. You know? And my old college roommate friended me. Some, and I was really tight with this guy in college, right? So he friended me. I hadn't seen him, talked to him. He lives on the West Coast in maybe 15 years. And he friended me, just friended me. So I friended him back and I wrote him a little note. Great to hear from you. How you doing? It's been so long. What's going on? You know, it's like never heard from him. <laughs> you know, and then a few weeks later, another person that I hadn't seen in a long time who was a pretty good friend of mine, guy I knew in high school, really close, friended me. I said the same thing. How you doing, Kenny? What's going on? Never heard from him. And I realized you weren't supposed to do that. You weren't supposed to do that. You weren't really actually supposed to connect with a few words of greeting. It was just friend a person and that's it. You know, after that, I kind of learned my lesson. And then a few months later, I friended somebody and they friended me back and wrote a little note. And I go, that person has some note. <laughs> Writing me a little note. <laughs> so this is a kind of a, a kind of really a, a, a sad and perhaps upsetting story. A friend of mine was telling me, you know, having his, his young teenage daughter was having difficulties and they were in family therapy and you know, one day the therapist decided to kind of challenge her, call her out and say, you know, you're really antisocial, you know? You know, you don't interact with other kids in your school. She says, what are you talking about? I'm really popular. I have 400 friends on Facebook. Daniel Goleman, you know, who's done a lot of uh, research, written a lot about social intelligence, you know, said that, you know, talks about how in neuroscience they've seen that, you know, we have these neurons called mirror neurons that get activated when we make a connection with somebody else, and that's what causes empathy to happen. But what happens is when we interact with somebody, let's say through email, the neuro, neuron element, the, neuro, the mirror neurons actually atrophy and degrade because there's no, no empathy there. So, you know, there's a loss of empathy in our relationships. We're numb. You know, we're numb. This is a quote from one of my favorite writers, Albert Camus, wrote this, I think, in the late 40s, early 50s, okay? So, a long time ago, right? Just read part of it. He says, he's talking about modern man. He says he can no longer tap that part of his nature, which rec- he can no longer tap that part of his nature, which he recaptures in contemplating the beauty of nature and of human faces. Because we live in a world of abstractions, of bureaus, of machines, of absolute ideas, and crude messianism, I can never say the word, messianism. I won't even go into that, crude messianism. We suffocate among people who think they're absolutely right, whether in their machines or their ideas. And for all who can live only in an atmosphere of human dialogue and sociability, this silence is the end of the world. 
others. He's saying, you know, this is, this is how we live, how we can live. We can only live in an atmosphere of human dialogue and sociability. You know, and because of our technology, our machines, and, you know, and our ideas, you know, what's developed is a silence. Is a silence. And of course, you know, he talks a lot about that silence as it pertains to politics and things that happen in the world that are really quite horrible. But I love this. I love this. Just, you know, when I read this, it just, I said, you know, it just, just struck me so much and it's just become so much part of the way I've thought about friends and love and connection and metta and metaphor all beings where he says this, he can no longer tap that part of his nature which he recaptures in contemplating the beauty of nature and of human faces. And, you know, Camus just had a way of just understanding humanity and understanding what the joy of being alive and being with others was about, you know, the beauty of human faces, the beauty of nature. Do we really see the beauty of human faces? Mostly what we do is we see people on a screen. Little people on screens. Reminds me of that, again, perhaps apocryphal story about Picasso, some of you artist types may know. Uh, where somebody who didn't really quite understand modern art came up to Picasso and said, can't you do something that's more realistic? You know, something that really, you know, depicts reality? And Picasso was like, well, what do you mean? The guy reached into his wallet, took out a picture of his, his, his wife and gave it to Picasso like this. Picasso looked at it and said, she's kind of small, isn't she? And she's really flat. <laughs> But we don't look into other people's faces. We don't see the beauty in other people's faces. We don't look, sometimes because we're on the machine. We're looking at what's going on in the machine or we're so busy listening to what's going on in our headphones. Or we look and we judge. You know, we go right into our tendency to decide what our preferences are. I like that person, I don't like that person. We don't really look at the human face. We don't look at that human face. We go, oh, I don't like that person. I like that person. I don't like what they're wearing. I don't like what they're doing. And then we're living in that world of abstraction. You know, we're not living in that world that the Buddha described to the venerable Bahia. You know, we're just walking, just tasting, just smelling, just being alive and awake and present. You know, we're adding on, I like, I don't like. We're not really seeing. We're not really seeing. Or we look, but we just don't see. You know, we don't really see the other. We don't really see the beauty in other people's faces. So, as a child of the 60s, uh, as a young man, I, uh, I really embraced the 60s zeitgeist, the ideas of the 60s, you know, which and those ideas in large part were about love. You know, 
that the most important thing was love and we should love everyone and we should love life and, and what really mattered was love. Make love, not war. And of course, I was brought up with the Beatles you know, and the Beatles were just great examples of, uh, of beings who were fulfilling their wish to be happy. And that love they had for life and music and all beings just shone, and they declared that and talked about that. And of course, John Lennon, his famous quote, love is the answer. Love is the answer. So as I grew older, I became really kind of cynical about love. You know, in recent years, I became even more cynical. Every time I would see somebody on the street corner, love you. Every time I would see somebody gauging the, their relationship with others by how many friends they had on Facebook, as I looked and saw what this cultural definition of love was, as I began to look more clearly at some of the movies and songs I was listening to, I started to become very cynical about love. I began to reject love, the whole notion of love. There was a real hardening of the heart. And I would say over the last few years, but particularly over the last year or so, uh, that cynicism has begun to drop and fall away. You know, because I've rejected or put to, to, to the side the culture's definition of what love is and have come to understand the Buddhas. And that's what really has saved me. That's what saved my ass, really, was that I really decided that I really needed to understand what love is. And the Buddha tells us. He tells us really clearly. You know, that's what we're talking about here on understanding. And he says that self-love is expressed and the wish that we have to have happiness of heart. We've talked about what that happiness is, the free heart. It's expressed in the action that we take in an effort to fulfill our wish to be happy. And love is expressed in terms of the love that we have for others and the wish that we have for them, that they be happy. And the action that we take in supporting others in their efforts to find true happiness. And this is really the Buddha's definition of love and of relationship. You know, we have relationship with others so that we can support others in their efforts to find happiness in their lives, to fulfill their wish to be happy. You know, we all need that. You know, we need people supporting us. We need each other. That's the relationship the monks have. They support each other in each other's wish to be happy. We're supporting each other here so that each one of us can fulfill our wish to be happy. It's not about liking or disliking. It's not about desire. It's not about getting something. The love that we have for others is the love that is expressed in the wish that we have for others, that they be happy, that they fulfill their wish to be happy, that they find their truth. And it's expressed through action always 
in the efforts that we make to support others. I've often talked on retreats about how, you know, what a loving thing it is that, you know, people who have partners and children, you know, there's people here whose families are supporting them and being here, which is an extraordinary thing. You know, I, I don't have a partner or a children, child, but actually the person who I'm using as my dear friend, you know, it was an email, but, you know, but she sent me an email just, just saw it just as I was leaving, you know. You have a beautiful retreat. Wishing you well. May you be happy. You know, we need that in our lives. People that care about us and support us in our practice, in our lives, in our efforts to be happy. This love that the Buddha talks about is not dependent on anything outside of ourselves, on our preferences, on whether other people are pleasant or unpleasant. It's not really dependent on what other people do. We're not responsible for other people's actions in loving others and having a loving relationship with others. Our task is to support them in their efforts to be happy. But all beings are owners of their karma. Their actions are, de- their, their actions are dependent on their karma, not upon our wishes for them. But we can have the wish for others that they be happy and support them in that. We can support each other in each other's wish to be happy, but you know, some of us might take actions that lead us away from happiness. But we're doing what we can do as human beings, what we can do given the human heart. We're doing everything that we can do. And it's a lot. It's a lot. This love isn't conditioned. It's always there in the heart. It's always there in the heart. It's always there, right there, inside, in the heart, in the body. It's in the body, so we have to go into the body to connect to it. So it's so different than that out-of-body experience. This is an in-the-body experience. You know, we learn in this practice to come out of the head into the body, you know, to put aside the thinking, to uh, free ourselves from the narratives that are driven by our uh, clinging, to come into the body, to connect to the body. You know, we connect to the body, this being in the body which serves us, which is so necessary in being able to connect to the heart so that we can love. You know? What this entails is having an awareness, a mindfulness of the body, and you know, the inner quality of energy in the body, what the Buddha called this enlarged awareness, what we seek to develop in breath meditation when we do full body awareness, step three. And when we have this quality of concentration, of mindfulness of the body, of the mindfulness of the full body, internally and externally, then we're awake. This is what it means to be awake. And we talk about a path of awakening. When we're asleep, when we're in the dream is when we're in the head when we're out of the body, when we're caught up in that romantic love or whatever else we're caught up in. To be awake is to be right here in this body. 
fully awake, fully awake, feeling our aliveness, the energy, the aliveness within us. And it's from this place that we can connect to our hearts and from which we seek to connect to others, to really be with the other, to be able from this place of awaken, of wakefulness, of being awake, to be able to look the other person in the face and see the beauty in other people's faces. So the way to the heart is through the body. It's not easy, of course, to get into the body. You know, so much of the practice of meditation, I like to say, is the journey of going into the body, of coming into the body. You know, and so much of our karma, all of our karma, really, for most of us, is led to clinging, aversion, desire, liking, disliking, preferences, narratives, becoming and being out of the body. And then, of course, we seek to make the effort to come into the body and there's physical pain in the body. We seek to make the effort as Dharma students and, you know, we can work with that. Buddha teaches us how to work with that. And we come into the body using the techniques of breath meditation, doing what we're doing here, and, you know, we resist that journey into the body. One of the ways that we resist that journey into the body manifests in what we sometimes call dharma pain. You know? You know, there's a part of the mind that, you know, really isn't quite understood that, you know, is trying to defend, is, you know, is, is, is defending against going into the body, which, you know, we talked yesterday about what we find when we go in there, right? all that pain, all that suffering, that trauma. So as we go into the body, what the mind will often do is try to deflect us. And what it does is create pain in the body, so we put our attention on the pain, physical pain, instead of making the journey in. So it's something that's really important to work with as we make the journey in. What happens is the mind, as we make this effort to be present, and these emotions or whatever start to arise, like we talked about yesterday, the mind goes, and again, we don't really know. This is sort of, you know, we haven't evolved quite far enough yet to the point where the mind doesn't go, I don't want to deal with that. So what happens is, you know, the nervous system, you know, bells go off, and the nervous system cuts down the flow of blood to certain parts of the body, usually parts of the body that are a little vulnerable. And as less blood goes into those parts of the body, there's oxygen deprivation. You know what happens when there's oxygen deprivation? That hurts. That hurts. That's what a cramp is. You ever have a leg cramp? And it's oxygen deprivation. You know, when you have that dharma pain, generally that's what it is. For years in my practice, I struggled with dharma pain. I had dharma pain, you know, and I had to learn to work my way through it. And for years, I would get this intense pain right here in the back of my head. Incredible pain. Only when I meditated. And usually only on retreat. It was like I'd walk through into the meditation hall. And I've had students that I've worked with over the years that have had, you know, really strong examples of this, like real throbbing pain in the head. You know, and generally those students were the most expert meditators that I had because they were going in and the body was objecting. 
And then, of course, we do have that emotional pain in the body. It's hard, as we said yesterday, so we have to learn to work that. That pain is calling for our attention, and we have to bring our attention to it and heal our woundedness, the trauma, the rage, the grief, the sorrow, the despair. So in meditation, you know, we make this journey into the body through the breath meditation. The breath is the beginning of that journey, the easeful breath, to create a place in the body where the body begins to become hospitable, a safe home for the mind. You know, and then cultivating an easeful abiding in the body so that we're able to come into the body and stay there. And that easeful flow of energy, and that's how we wake up to this body and this life. Because you know, as, as somebody was saying... We were talking about this in one of the interviews. This is all we got, man. This is, this is our reality right here. This is it. Wake up to it. That's our practice. That's what awakening is, to wake up to this experience, to get into the body. You know, and as I said last night, uh, I just see more and more how the, it's all about the body. You know, once we can get into the body... We're pretty much there. You know, we're 95% of the way there. Because we come into the body and what do we find? The heart. You know? It's just getting there. We find the heart. You know, I've had any number of times over the years, particularly the last number of years, when I've come into the body, when I've been in the body, and in the heart, in the body, and I'm just there in the body and in the heart and connected to the happiness of the heart. And I'm happy, you know, and it's just astonishing in those moments. It's like, this is all I really need. Everything I need is right here. Everything I need is right here. It's right here. And then, of course, why don't you do this all the time, you know? But, you know, it's like, but everything I need, you know, it always amazes me. It's all right here. It's all right here. Think of that story of the Skywalker, you know, the Deva who flew through the universe trying to find true happiness, came to the Buddha and said, I've been everywhere. The Buddha said, you could fly everywhere throughout the universe. The only place you're going to find happiness is in this body. As T.S. Eliot wrote, we shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Now, ultimately, love is the action that we take. It's expressed in the action that we take. So as awake beings, being awake, being in the body, we have a sensitivity to the heart and the quality of our intentions. We're able to know whether the intention behind our actions is skillful. Is it coming from aversion or desire? We know that in the body. Is it coming from the heart? We know that when we're sensitive to the body and sensitive to the heart. That's why Tanjav says, insight is sensitivity. Insight is sensitivity. Another quote from Camus who talks about when we don't have that sensitivity to the body. He says, we make love by telephone. We work not on matter but on machines and we kill and are killed by proxy. We gain in cleanliness, but lose in understanding. So it's really easy to kill when you just set up a drone, you know, or you do it on a machine, right? You know, that's kind of, I mean, that's the most blatant example of what it's like when we're not truly awake, when we relate to others through machines, 
when our connection to others is degraded, when we aren't able to look others in the face and see the beauty in other people's faces. Maybe if we could look those people right in the eye and in their faces, we wouldn't commit the violence that we commit on all different kinds of levels. As I said, Camus was very interested as being somebody who lived through civil war and world war, very interested in killing and in violence. When we're in the body and in the heart, we can act with love. We can act with love. You know, I realized when I was, when I came to this practice after a few years that, you know, I had been doing a job for many years that really wasn't, you know, didn't really, wasn't an expression of my wish to be happy. I wasn't fulfilling my wish to be happy. I was trying to make money so that I could get sense pleasures and have some acclaim. People would like me. You know, and then I realized, you know, you're not, you know, I remembered, you know, as a child, I had this wish to be happy. You know, as a young man, graduating high school, you know, it was like, I'm going to live a joyful life. I'm going to live a great life, you know. And then 35 years, I'm like, look what I'm doing. I wasn't doing anything bad, but it just wasn't anywhere near to being an expression of self-love. So I began that journey that kind of has taken me to here. You know, and a big part of that journey was when I started this group. Because I'd already started a center, and for a variety of reasons, you know, I really felt like I had more to give, you know, that I had more in the heart that I could give. So I started this group in 2002, and somewhere around 2003, a couple of people here will remember this quite vividly, uh, I found myself in debt. Pretty, pretty well into debt, and I began to entertain very seriously not doing what I was doing anymore. I was going to be a therapist. Could you imagine? No. <laughs> you know, I was going to be a therapist. I actually went you know, to orientations and got applications and talked to my friends who were therapists and got people who would do recommendations for me. You know, but then I began to, you know, I mean, I knew that the, I was contracted around that. I knew it wasn't true, you know, and I began to look at, well, what's the intention behind it? Well, part of it was I was angry that people weren't putting enough money in the Donna basket. Screw you guys. I'm going to go do something else. That's a good intention, right? That's really honorable and noble and will lead to true happiness. And a lot of it was fear, right? It was fear, like I'm not going to be able to live and support myself. A big part of it, I don't even know if I've ever shared that this before, was I didn't like the fact that there wasn't a lot of status in being a meditation teacher. I thought I would get a lot more props if I was a therapist, you know, and I would have. I would have got a lot more dates, that's probably for sure, you know? It's like meditation teacher, you know? I mean, it's like, I'm going to be a therapist, I'm going to be a professional, you know? You know, but I could see that. You know, I could see that. And I could see that my intention was unskillful. And in the heart, I knew what I needed to do. You know, and I kind of walked past that fear and out of love for myself and out of the wish that I had for others, you know, I said to people for the first time, you know, I'm not getting enough in the Donna basket. You know, I may have to go do something else. And people said, what do you, how much do you need? 
And that's how we started the whole financial structure for this group. I was able to see what was an expression of love for myself that would fulfill my wish to be happy, but also for others. You know, and I, I you know, truthfully, I mean, therapists are great. I've had a million of them, believe me. Uh, and, but, you know, I really felt like I could help others a lot more by being a Dharma teacher, given the paucity of Dharma teachers that we have. You know, and I, I was thinking about this as I was writing this talk. You know, it's like more than 10 years later. Fuck, I made the right decision. You know, it was like it just really hit me as I was working on this talk. There's no question I made the right decision by following my heart. There's no question by doing what I did, I was able to be on a path that allowed me to move towards a greater happiness in life. There's no question that where I am now, you know, is so much more uh, true and has been so much more beneficial to me in terms of who I am and my ability to love myself and others. There's no question in my mind, you know, that I'm, you know, I, you know, I can't imagine not being where I am now and doing what I'm doing now, despite all my grousing. You know, by doing what I'm doing, my path is deepened, my heart is opened, I'm much closer to happiness, and I'm much closer to being able to love others. This is the basic tenet, of course, that we've been talking about, is love ourselves, learn to love ourselves, and we can love others. You know, we begin to love ourselves and feel metta for ourselves, you know, and we begin to connect into that felt sense of our wish to be happy, and then we start to feel that quality of metta. You know, we feel, we begin to feel love in the heart. I mean, that's the process that we're going through and that we'll, we'll start really deepening into over the next few days, to really feel metta, to really feel love in the heart and let it radiate out into the heart and into the body and out into the room. You know, and when we experience that quality of metta, there's happiness. You know, there's happiness. And we're able to be more in the body and more in the heart and awake. And this is what informs our relationships with others. This is what informs friendship. This is what friendship is, to be awake, to be awake with each other, for each other. As Rumi said, stay together, friends. Don't scatter and sleep. Our friendship is made of being awake. Our friendship is made of being awake. You know, this friendship is so precious, is so precious, if we think of the Buddha's definition of friendship. It's such a precious thing, such a precious thing, and it's really kind of a rare thing. Friendship, true friendship. You know, the friendship that supports us in our efforts to be happy. When I think of relationships in my life, when I've had a friendship that was really made of being awake. One of the things I, I think about a lot, you know, and I, I, that comes up in my mind is, is when I played sports, when I played soccer, the friendship, the deep friendship that I had with those guys on the team. Didn't like all of them. I was different than all of them, but we supported each other for years. You know, we were on the same soccer team for years, and we supported each other, and we loved each other. You know, and to this day, 
most of those guys I haven't seen in a long time. They're my brothers. They're my brothers. Camus said he learned everything he learned about ethics by playing sports. Soccer. Now Whitman, of course, was the bard, the great bard of friendship, and really spoke to you know, the preciousness of friendship. Sometimes he called it adhesiveness. He said, I announce adhesiveness. I say it shall be limitless, unloosened. I say you shall yet find the friend you are looking for. That quote has always meant so much to me. I say you shall yet find the friend that you are looking for. I mean, when push comes to shove, that's why I started this group. You know? That's why I started this group, so that I could have wise friendships. You know, ultimately, that's what it comes down to. Community, friendship, love, taking care of each other. Whitman. Afternoon, this delicious ninth month in my 41st year, I proceed for all who are or who have been young to tell the secrets of my days and nights to celebrate the need of comrades. So this is what friendship is, to give our full attention to the other, to be fully present to be awake. You know, we talked about you know, exemplifying dharma. You don't have to be a dharma student, but to be engaged in true friendship and true relationship is to be awake, is to be awake. You know, so much of our relationships with friends, you know, we talk to the friend on the phone while we're watching TV and maybe checking the text. You know, we talk to our kids while we're on email. One of my favorite poems, William Stafford, a ritual to read to each other. If you don't know the kind of person I am and I don't know the kind of person you are, a pattern that others made may prevail in the world and following the wrong God home, we may miss our star. For there is a small betrayal in the mind, a shrug that lets a fragile sequence break, sending with shouts the tar- horrible errors of childhood storming out to play through the broken dike. And as elephants parade holding each other's tail, but if one wanders, the circus won't find the park. I call it cruel and maybe the root of all cruelty to know what occurs but not recognize the fact. And he's talking about what we're talking about, not connecting. And so I appeal to a voice, to something shadowy, a remote, important region and all who talk. Though we could fool each other, we should consider lest the prey of our mutual life get lost in the dark. For it is important that awake people be awake, or a breaking line may discourage them back to sleep. The signals we give, yes or no, or maybe, should be clear. The darkness around us is deep. As Dharma students, we seek to be in the world, in the body, awake. And we seek to meet the other, all beings, being fully present, seeing each being, understanding that each being has the wish to be happy, looking each being in the face, seeing the beauty in their faces. This is why I talked about this the other night. I'm very adamant about not walking down the street with the headphones on. Can we be awake Can we see the beauty in the faces? 
And when we're awake, connected to the heart, really connected to the heart, we see past the likes and dislikes, the appearances. We see the beauty in the faces. You know, there's those moments when I am fully present, you know, or pretty damn close to it, you know. And, you know, and, and really that this is something that I've really been working with so much as I've been thinking about the things and the words we use and the things that we're talking about tonight and the development of my own practice, you know, to be out there in the world, you know, to be on the street, to look at the beauty in the faces, to see and to look, and when we're really present, we see past the likes and the dislikes, and we see that each one of those beings, all beings have the wish to be happy. We see that, we connect, it's right there in the heart, I feel it right there in the heart, there's no question about it, that's what's in the heart. All the other stuff is what's, I don't like this, what's in the heart is the wish for all beings, that all beings be happy. That's the truth of what's in our hearts. That's the truth of what's in our hearts. That's what we're seeking to develop in being here. So I've moved beyond cynicism. You know? I'm back to believing that it is all about love. I really am, sometimes. Most of the time I am. You know? And that there's nothing greater in terms of a greater happiness than to be in the world and to be connected to the wish that I have for all beings, that all beings be happy, and that I connect with others and relate to others, those I know and that I don't know, with love and with compassion and with joy, just like the Buddha did, pure love, pure love. Several years after the Beatles broke up, a reporter did, I've mentioned this before, it's been a while, uh, a reporter did an interview with went to each of the four Beatles and sort of the idea was, do you still believe that love is the answer, you know? And he went to John Lennon and John do a bad English accent, well, no, I think it's justice, you know? And Paul said something, you know, and Ringo said something silly. They went to George and George said, yeah, I'm going to stick with it. I'm staying with it. I'm staying with it. I'm staying with it. I'm staying with it. You know, because when we are fully awake and when we are connected to the wish in our hearts that all beings be happy, we are connected to the meta in our hearts, there's happiness. There's happiness. This is the way to happiness. So let's just close our eyes for a minute. <clears throat> 